This is one of my very favorite passages in the Bible. I remember when I was first in college and I first discovered Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Um, Some of the most detailed sort of explanations or meditations upon what Jesus did on the cross. And they're actually in the Old Testament, which is interesting. The New Testament accounts in the Gospels of what Jesus suffered on the cross are actually very restrained. They don't go into much gory detail at all. But there's a lot more detail about what Jesus really suffered in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53. And I don't know about you, but I have often found over the course of my life as a Christian, since I became a Christian maybe around ninth grade, I've often found my heart in a really cold and dead place. And Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 have always been places that I've been able to go back again and again and just have the Lord melt my heart. It's not automatic, but there's something about gazing upon Christ and him crucified that just has real power. But it's ironic because it's a passage all about how power comes in the most unexpected ways. Now, here we are in Easter week. Good Friday is a few days away. And Good Friday is the most paradoxical of ideas. To call it Good Friday is really the ultimate in irony. How can it be good that an innocent man was tortured to death? How can it be good that a man who didn't deserve to die had charges trumped up against him, was beaten to a bloody pulp, and then was hung on a cross to die. How can that be good? And yet, the paradox of that is at the heart of what Christianity calls the good news, the gospel. But it's bizarre. And this passage is is an incredible prophecy about what it would take for us to be reconciled to God and brought into a relationship with him. Last week, we talked about the first of the four servant songs that are in Isaiah, where Isaiah gets a vision from God and is able to write it for all of us of the servant who is coming to do God's will. And here in the last of the four servant songs in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, we get the heart of what this servant is coming to do. And we find that it, it, at one level, it, it just combines things together that don't seem to fit together. And that's really what Good Friday is about. It's about things that shouldn't go together that go together. It's about power. It's about freedom. But it's about death that leads to life and weakness that's real power. It's about freedom that comes from being bound and defeat that is really triumph. Good Friday is about misunderstanding. Because if there's one thing that you could say about the original Good Friday, it's that nobody understood what was happening. Everybody that was there concluded wrongly about what was going on. But Good Friday is also about seeing more clearly than we've ever seen before. Because it really is on Good Friday that we see the power of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, more clearly than we see anywhere else. 
Now, Martin Luther had a, had a way of explaining this that I found very helpful. Martin Luther wasn't a perfect guy, but he had some very helpful things to say. And one of these was his theology of the cross. Martin Luther said that he was particularly concerned about theologians he called the theologians of glory. Theologians of glory were these sort of academicians that he said were trying to spy upon God in his nakedness. Because they were trying to sort of figure out who God must be according to philosophy, but neglecting how Christ and Christ crucified was the supreme revelation of who God is. And he said that you get into all kinds of trouble when you try to reason merely from God is sovereign and God is good and why is there evil, and you leave out Jesus and him crucified. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the ultimate expression The ultimate manifestation of the power of God, the goodness of God, is not in your philosophical abstractions, Luther said, but in Christ and him crucified. If you want to understand the love of God, look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to understand the power of God, look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to understand the wisdom of God that surpasses any kind of wisdom that we could ever have, look at Jesus on the cross. It is the ultimate manifestation of every attribute of God because it is God at work doing his most powerful work even when it looked like to everybody around that God had abandoned Jesus and that God was nowhere near the cross. In fact, in fact, he was doing his most powerful work when it looked like he was doing nothing at all. And Luther said, you have to understand the cross to make sense of the Christian life. Because the theology of the cross is not just something for Jesus, it's something for all of his people. That often when it seems like God is not doing anything at all, he's doing his most powerful work in your life and in his world. Well, Good Friday, if it's anything, is about how things aren't always what they appear. So let's look at this passage and see how we how we get here a surprising upside-down revelation of the power of God. Now, we're going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So, if you have a Bible, look there with me. Isaiah the prophet says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured, Beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, 
and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, or you could translate by the knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to this passage, we feel that we should take off our shoes that we're standing on holy ground, that we come here to the very heart of the most grievous and most glorious thing that has ever happened. And our minds can't even begin to get around this idea that though he was innocent, he was crushed, and it was your will, and that he was crushed for our iniquities. Lord, impress upon our hearts the meaning of this, the significance of this, the importance of this. This passage is about life and death, both Jesus's and ours. And we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive this life-giving word. For your glory, we pray. Amen. This is a, just an intense passage. It's an intense passage. And, and I, what's fascinating, you go back to verse 1, and you see this phrase, who has believed our message? And you get the sense that this is difficult to believe. Isaiah, even as he's writing this, knows that this is not going to really make any sense. In a lot of ways, this doesn't make any sense until Jesus comes and lives it and forces the early church and the disciples to go back to the scriptures trying to figure out what just happened. What just happened? And this becomes a passage that helps them understand, ah, this is, this is what this is about. This is what Jesus was trying to tell us when he talked about how he came, he came to suffer and to die. 
When he tried to tell Peter that he needed to go to Jerusalem, and Peter said, no. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand what I'm about. You don't understand what I'm doing. You don't understand who I am. The early church had to go back and wrestle with the scriptures. And this passage is one of the clearest explanations of what Jesus was about and what God is about. But it's paradoxical. It doesn't seem to make any sense in so many ways. And we'll see as we go through it. The the second thing that's fascinating in verse 1 is it says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, again, because we've just been stopping off at different places in Isaiah, we haven't really hit on this idea too much, but the arm of the Lord is a theme in the book of Isaiah. And, And what the arm of the Lord speaks of, it speaks of God's power. And so what Isaiah is saying is in these verses, in this chapter, we have the supreme revelation, the ultimate culmination of the Lord's power doing his work. And yet it seems like what we have here is a victim who has no power whatsoever. What, it, what you see here is somebody that we consider stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Why? Because it said in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in Jesus' day, the Jews applied that to crucifixion. To hang on a cross is the ultimate proof that God has forsaken you and abandoned you and that God hates you. And this passage says that's exactly what happens. He's smitten and afflicted. It's the Lord's will to crush him. And yet Isaiah says, this is the arm of the Lord being revealed. Now, in the book of Isaiah, this is like a radical 180. Because Isaiah has been talking about the arm of the Lord. And God's people have this great hope that when the arm of the Lord is revealed, everything will be made right. There'll be no more brokenness. There'll be no more sorrow. The oppressors of God's people will be dealt with. And then you get to Isaiah 53, and you see this is the revelation of the arm of the Lord. And it doesn't make any sense at all. The arm of the Lord means that an innocent person is put to death? How can that be the triumph of God? How can that be God's plan to make all things right? How can it be? But that's exactly what's going on here. We see that the arm of the Lord comes as a person, God himself, with us. Now, why do people dismiss this servant as being the revelation of the arm of the Lord? Why, does this, why, does this, why is this such a barrier for people in Jesus' day and even today? And the passage gets at some of these things. If you look at verse 2, it seems... This one who is the servant of the Lord, who will die for his people, is one who has a very ordinary human origin, at least to everybody around. It says here in verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. There was nothing special about him. Look, it says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. God's people had had an impressive king, you know. They elected Saul to be their king, Saul in the Old Testament. 
And the Bible says they picked Saul. Why? Because he was a head taller than everybody else. Physical descriptions are rare in the Bible. And when they're there, they're important and you should pay attention to them. So God's people had picked their king. He had a whole lot to attract us to him. But ultimately, he was a dismal failure. He couldn't even deliver God's people from the Philistines. When Goliath was uttering blasphemies against God, Saul was cowering, hiding. So God raises up one who has no majesty, no beauty. There's nothing about his physical appearance that would make us think this is the hope of the world. He grew up in a small little town, insignificant little place, in a country that was oppressed and held captive by the Romans. This, how could this be God's plan to change the world through an insignificant, poor shepherd, carpenter's son, sorry, carpenter's son, in an insignificant little place, back hole, little corner of the world? Not only that, he seems to be distinct from God. He's distinguished here in verse 2. He grew up before him. In other words, he grew up before God. He grew up before God. And yet, how can he be the arm of the Lord and yet distinct from the Lord? It's a paradox there. And there's no evidence, like I said, of his special status at all. Thus, verse 3, makes sense. He was shunned. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Do you understand? Jesus' suffering did not begin when they began to whip him. His suffering began when he took on human flesh. When he was circumcised on the eighth day, he didn't need to be. Circumcision was something that God's people did as a sign of their hope in God's promise to bring cleansing to them. It's a cleansing ritual. But Jesus didn't need that cleansing, yet he was cut. He grew up acquainted with grief and with suffering. His father died, we don't know when. He was poor. He had nowhere to lay his head, he said. He was betrayed by his friends in his hour when he needed them most. People tried to stone him. They despised him. They called him names said he was a drunk. All kinds of things, right? He doesn't seem like he is the kind of person that God has his favor upon. He was despised. And ultimately, verse 3, we esteemed him not. What that means in verse 3 is that we considered him of no value. We considered him of no value. What a What a damning indictment on the people of this world that the one who is of ultimate worth was considered to be of no value. In reality, he's taking up our infirmities, carrying our sorrows. And yet again, people look at him, they consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. You know, as he hung on the cross... People had all kinds of thoughts about Jesus and what was going on. Some thought it was a tragedy. He seemed like a good guy. He brought healing to the sick. He would cast out demons. He brought hope to people that had no hope. What a tragedy. 
It's all come to naught. Some thought it was well-deserved. How dare this one threaten our power? How dare this one say that he could rebuild the temple, forgive sins like he's God himself? He well deserves to be hung on a cross. Some thought it was a noble expression of Jesus' commitment to his vision and his ideals, even today. All of these opinions still, still exist, you know. Some think it was a tragedy. He was a great guy and a good teacher, but he must have offended the wrong people and he was put to death. What a tragedy. Some people think it was well-deserved. He had, he had no business claiming to be God. He's a crazy man. Some people, again, think that he had a noble vision and died as a martyr, and we should take great courage from that and try to be like him. Some saw his death on a cross as an expression and the manifestation of his egomania, (laughs) and somebody had to put him in his place. Finally, got what he deserved. Some saw it as a manifestation that even though he claimed to be powerful and claimed to even be the son of man, yet in reality he didn't have real power, the kind of power that counts. The people with real power are the people with the swords, and the people could hang you on a cross. And we hope that Jesus had power, but it's obvious now that he doesn't. But no one, no one saw it for what it really was the supreme manifestation of the arm of the Lord, the power of God. But that's what it was. Jesus is in absolute control of what's going on on the cross. Look at verse 6. It says here, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7 says, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, guys, the emphasis in this passage is on the intentionality of what the servant is doing. He did not open his mouth, but here's the big difference between a lamb led to slaughter and Jesus going to the cross. The lamb has no idea what's coming. Jesus knew very well what was coming. We know that because of the way he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there be any way, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath that Isaiah said needed to be drank to the dregs, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he prayed, Not my will, but your will be done. And he went willingly, intentionally to the cross. He laid down his life willingly. Animals go to the slaughter quietly because they're clueless. Jesus knew fully well what he was doing, and he was in control of it. He himself said, no one takes my life from me. He had the power to call down legions of angels and to deal with everybody participating in his unjust execution as they deserved. But instead, he hung on a cross by sheer willpower and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what 
they do. He was in absolute control of what was going on. Jesus wasn't killed by the Romans. He wasn't even killed by God, his father. As he hung there on the cross, he chose the moment in which he gave up his life. And he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he died in absolute control. He wasn't a victim, but we considered him a victim. Everybody there thought that he was being put to death. But in reality, he was dying as a substitute for his people. You see, all through this passage, it was for our transgressions. You can't hardly go two verses before Isaiah wants to remind you, okay, all this is happening, but it's for this reason. The cross was not God improvising. Okay, he sent his Messiah down here to tell us how to live. And people didn't like it. And they put him to death. And so, you know, God's up there frantically trying to figure out, what can I, what can I do with this? What am I going to do now? Oh, I know. I'll, I'll let this count as a sacrifice for all of the sin of the world. No. It was God's intentional plan from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus came, left his father's throne, came, took on flesh, Suffered in ways you can't imagine. You know what it's like for the innocent son of God who made everything good to look at the brokenness of the world and to walk around for 33 years and see tragedy and brokenness. A world that he created good. I know it bothers you and it should. It bothers your heart, right? To look at the world that we live in and see the brokenness and see the injustice. Imagine what it was like for the one who made it all and made it very good. He suffered like you can't believe, every day of his life. The cross was the exclamation point. But he suffered redemptively his whole life because his coming was for us. And everything he did and everything he experienced was for us. Colossians chapter 2 sort of gets at this. Paul says that while Jesus was disarmed, Hung on a cross, helpless, he is in reality disarming all of the powers and the principalities of evil. That while he has been stripped naked, I know it's not that way in any of the movies, but that's what the Romans did. While he's being humiliated publicly, he's actually humiliating the kingdom of Satan. That while it seems that he's absolutely powerless, he is actually triumphing over Satan. How? Because the power that Satan has is the power of the law. God says, to be in relationship with me, you must love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's what you were made for. And when you don't do that, you're guilty. When I don't do that, I'm guilty before a holy God. And Satan can take that and beat the hell out of you with it because it's true. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it because it's true. But Jesus makes it untrue because Jesus takes the law that condemns us and he dies in our place, and takes the condemnation, drinks the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. And there's none left for all those who are in 
Christ. He triumphed on the cross. And it's a bizarre thing because triumph and cross don't go together. Now, you've been around Christianity for so long. Of course, it makes sense. You triumph by a cross, but it's a bizarre thing. It would be, it's, it's like, you know, people wear crosses around, and I, I haven't looked to see if anybody's wearing a cross here tonight, but it's like wearing, you know, an electric chair around your neck. To everybody in the first century, A.W. Tozer has a great, a great uh, essay about this. I used to love A.W. Tozer, still do. He has a thing where he says, you know, in, in our day, we wear crosses, but in Jesus' day, the cross wore men. And when you took up your cross, everybody knew that there was one, only one ending to this story, death. Crosses make no compromise. They're about death. They're not about triumph. They're about Rome triumphing over anybody that would dare challenge their power. And yet Jesus, Jesus is upending the Roman Empire. And only within a couple centuries, Christianity will take over. Even mighty Rome And it's all because of this cross. How do you define God's power? (laughs) Do you believe that God is using his power when it fits your agenda? We tend to think that God isn't working, that we cry out, that we pray to him, but he's only working when he answers the way we want him to. But all I can tell you is, guys, if you'd been there on Good Friday watching Jesus hang on a cross, you would have concluded that God had not shown up when in fact he was working salvation for people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. All the bystanders concluded, here's God's anointed and he's failed when he was triumphing. When it looks like God is doing nothing, he's really doing his most powerful work and he still works that way. That's Luther's point about the theology of the cross. It's vital for you to understand that often God removes his presence to draw you to a deeper level of trust. Some of us guys are studying a book, uh, The Cry of the Soul by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, an excellent book. And we just talked last night about um, redemptive abandonment. And how you see this pattern over and over again in the Psalms and in the history of God's people. Where God's people, you know, are crying out for God and he basically abandons them. And then they cry out more and it drives them to a deeper trust that they never would have come to if they hadn't went through that. Uh, One of the best examples is in Isaiah 63. And I'm going to preach on that passage. So so we'll get to this in more detail. I don't want to get too off track here tonight. Do we think that God's power is only at work when he's working according to our expectations and our agenda? The point of Good Friday is stand back and watch out. God is working in ways that you can't believe. And I I think this is what the hymn writers get so well. It's why I love singing hymns like Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Right? Right? It's easy for us to see even the physical suffering and think that that's the worst of it. But the deepest stroke that he undertook was the stroke that justice gave. That God judged him as the sin of the world. Do we really understand what was going on on the cross? He was a man of sorrows. We know that. 
But why? Verse 4 tells us. It's because he took on our sins. He didn't deserve to be sorrowful. He didn't deserve to have his heart broken. His sorrow was not his own. It was for us. I don't know about you, but I usually do anything and everything I can to avoid pain. But the heart of what Jesus does is he takes on pain and suffering that he doesn't deserve and he doesn't need to take. And if you have a hard time identifying with what it means that Jesus loves you, think of it this way. What thing would you do anything to avoid? What thing would you do anything to avoid? Would it be betrayal by your friends? Would it be abandonment? Would it be physical torture? What would you do anything to avoid? What is your greatest nightmare? That's precisely what Jesus took willingly. The thing that you would do anything to avoid, Jesus willingly took in your place. He was misunderstood. People thought that his death proved he was cursed and couldn't be the Messiah. But the reality was, he was the Messiah and he was cursed. But it was for us. Do you see these, these pronouns all through, you know, these, these little, it's our sins. It was for us. All these little words make all the difference in the world. And it, he did, we didn't even understand what's going on. Right? It was without our cooperation or even our understanding. Jesus suffered on a cross and worked salvation for his people without them having anything to do with it. You weren't there. You didn't do anything. What Jesus did on the cross, he did alone for you. What the servant does on the cross reconciles us to God. And that word surely that starts out verse 4, whenever the Bible says that, it's, it's, it's like, check this out. Look at this. This is amazing. It's amazing. It's unexpected. The disciples failed to understand, right? They decide, the disciples didn't understand. Look, verse 8, actually a different translation, um, could be, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? It could be his circle of friends. And then it ends up being, basically, he was taken away by oppression and judgment, and his circle of friends were clueless. They didn't understand what was going on. That's what the NIV margin says. The end of verse 8 is literally this. It's very succinct, the wording, and I think it's powerful the way it's so succinct in the Hebrew. Because of the rebellion of my people, the blow to him. Because of the rebellion of my people, the blow to him. You couldn't get the idea of substitution any more clearly than that. Jesus did not just die to make people savable. He died to take a punishment that specific people deserved, and he took it in their place. Because of the rebellion of my people, the blow to him. One-to-one correspondence. Substitutionary atonement. It's at the heart of what Jesus did. He didn't just die so that God wouldn't be mad at the world anymore. He died to take the punishment that God righteously delivered to those who had sinned against him. He deals with every aspect of our need too. I love this idea that by his wounds we are healed. There's great mystery there. What does it mean that by his wounds we're healed? But I will tell you this, that what happened at the cross does more than just deal with your guilt. 
It also begins the process of dealing with all of your wretchedness and your brokenness. And it is the beginning that will culminate in God wiping away every tear from your eye one day. That the cross changes everything. Healing, the Hebrew idea of shalom, that things are made right. And it's what the cross is about. He suffers alone, right? Again, look at the he and the we and the way this works out in verse 4 and in verse 6. He took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. Look at verse 6. We like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the way that's him and us, him and us? In other words, we don't cooperate with this at all. We don't bring anything to the table. The only thing we contribute is unbelief and sin. He does it all. The reason the gospel is good news is because you don't have to die to get God to love you. You don't have to hurt yourself. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to weep until you've got no more tears left so that God will finally relent and smile at you. No, Jesus did all the suffering that's needed to change God's righteous anger to smiles and to bring you into his family as his adopted children. Jesus did everything that was needed. He deals with every aspect of our need. And notice this. This just blows me away. Look at verse, verse 10. Talk about the heart of the mystery. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Hebrew is even more graphic. It says it's the Lord's delight. It was the Lord's delight to crush his son. Now, this is, this is crazy. Think about this. God the Father was not forced into the atonement. God the Son did not go to God the Father and say, I know you really are mad at all these people, but come on, for my sake, cut him a break. God the Father was not unwilling to crush his son, and then his son kind of offers himself up and changes the father's mind. No, salvation was a work of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit all cooperating together. It was the father's delight to crush his son, to justify the ungodly. God delighted to crush his own son who didn't deserve it. Wow. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? How can you stand against that love and say, I don't care? When it was the father's delight to crush his son. Can you even begin to imagine the love of the father for his people? That would draw forth him delighting in crushing his son. And you wonder what God thinks about you. How can you wonder when you look at the cross? How can you doubt his love when you see him delighting to crush his son in your place? Truly, he would rather die than live without you. Does that do anything to your heart? I love, I love the way in, um, it, it says here that um, in verse 6, we go astray as sheep. And yet in verse 10, we're his offspring, 
his children. We go astray as sheep, and yet because of what he does, what the servant does, we come and become his children. Isn't that beautiful? What about his great reward? Look at down in verse 10 and 12. Now this here is a little, the, the translation, the NIV translation that I read from, is a little confusing. And you can see, if you're looking from the NIV, all kinds of little footnotes. and little. It could be this or it could be that. I want to suggest that um, what's a better way to understand verse 12 is, is this way. He inherits the many and apportions the strong as spoil. In other words, because of what he does, he gets us as his reward, as his spoil. In other words, the servant gets what he paid for. He receives those he died for. It's not true that Jesus dies for people and then they go off and go to hell anyway. Now you're getting into a great mystery here because as soon as you start talking about substitutionary atonement, you get into issues like predestination and and all these kinds of things. And I'm not going to solve that for you tonight. Only to say that if you want to understand what the Bible says about what Jesus did on the cross, it's substitutionary atonement for his people where he suffers their punishment. And if you, if you well, the way Spurgeon, I thought Spurgeon had a good illustration one time, when he said, we can talk about God loving everybody and offering a wonderful plan for their life, but that's not good news. Not if you know your heart. It's not good news that God offers a wonderful plan for your life. The good news is that Jesus died in the place of sinners, takes away their heart of stone, and gives them a heart of flesh. And don't you dare protest that he sort of overruled your free will. You're damn right he did, and it's a good thing, or you'd have no hope in the world. I like the way Spurgeon says it. Free choice has carried many a soul to hell, but none to heaven. The Lord has the right to choose his bride. He does, and he dies in their place. Now, can I tell anybody sitting in this room or listening to this podcast that you're one of the Lord's chosen ones that he died for? No. The only way we know that is if you respond to the gospel. 1 Thessalonians says it that clearly. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you because the gospel came to you not merely with words, but with power and deep conviction. So don't get hung up on that. Look at Jesus and pray that the Lord would break your heart and draw you to him because he's done everything needed. Spurgeon said, you know, we can talk about Jesus' love like covering everybody the same way and it's like having a bridge that goes partway over the chasm. It's really wide, but it doesn't get you all the way across. What Jesus does on the cross doesn't just make you savable if you decide to add your faith to it. What Jesus does on the cross saves sinners. It saves them. It secures them. And that's why it says that he gets reward. He gets the strong as his spoil. He gets what he paid for. Jesus does not die and then have it all go to naught because you resist it with your unbelief. What the atonement does secures your belief. As it says in the Psalms, we are made willing in the day of his power. Now, I know not everybody agrees with that. We can talk about it over coffee. And I know a lot of people at first resist it. But I'm telling you, if you deny this, you deny the heart of the gospel. I know a lot of people don't connect the dots, and that's probably okay in a sense. It makes them happy, I guess, and naive. But the reality is, the heart of the gospel 
is that Jesus lives and dies in the place of sinners. Substitutionary atonement is this. This is substitutionary atonement, right? And there's a lot, of, there's, there's a lot more we could say about this, but let me, let, me, let me press on to a couple applications. We don't have to wonder what God thinks of us if our trust is in Jesus and his death. Because God's acceptance of his people is not based on his whim of the moment. It's based upon the fact that the servant died. That the peace punishment was on him. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Therefore, you can have a place of rest. But it's not just to make us feel good. It's to constrain us to live as people bought with a price. The Bible doesn't say, hey, let me just tell you, all that Jesus did for you, isn't that great? Doesn't that just make your day? Now go out and live any way you want to. And I think in some ways, one of the reasons that we resist the sovereign grace teaching of the Bible is because we feel like as long as I can get some of the credit for salvation, then I've got a basis upon which I can tell God, now you're really asking too much. If Jesus did absolutely everything for you, then he has every right to ask everything of you. You understand? And I know in your heart of hearts you know that, and I know it. But when you look at what Jesus did, the logic of the gospel makes sense. You're not your own, the Bible says. You've been bought with a price. And what a price. What a price. When was the last time you really gazed upon Jesus suffering in your place? I hope that whatever you've got planned for Easter break, I hope that you will make some time to gaze upon Jesus and him crucified. Because I don't know about you, but I know that I need it. My heart is broken. My heart is cold. My heart is hard. I get so busy I don't have time to think about anything except just getting through the day. Let me give you a suggestion. Meditate on this passage. Ask the Lord to break your heart over it. Look at Psalm 22. Jot that one down. It's a great one. Another great place for extended meditation. Read it, if you can, every day from between now and Easter. Um, Hebrews, maybe chapter 8, 9, 10. Powerful stuff about what Jesus was about and what the heart of the gospel is. And then a good hymnal can be a really great thing. You can go to Cyber Hymnal. Just, just Google Cyber Hymnal. C-Y-B-E-R, hymnal. It keeps moving around, so I'm not sure the website address. It kind of changes sometimes. Just Google cyber hymnal. And then you can search hymns by topic and look up atonement, cross, death of Christ. And just seep in some of those, just sit in some of those, uh, those great powerful texts. Maybe the, the, the poetry will help get these truths of the gospel into your heart. We need to have continual looks of Christ and him crucified. Paul went so far as to say to some of these some people one time, look, when I was with you, I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. You may be, you know, amazed when you look at it, great, what a beautiful day we had, right? And it's amazing to look at God's creation. But you know what? The creation, do you know what it cost God to make the world? A word. Let there be. It's actually one word in the Hebrew. One word. But what did it cost God to bring you into his family and make you righteous in his sight? Everything. But it wasn't too great a cost. He delighted to pay it. 
right? So it's one thing to be amazed at the creation, but it pales in comparison to the cross. You remember this movie, Contact? Anybody see that movie, Contact? You remember? It, it, Jodie Foster was in it. it. It's sort of this movie about, you know, is there life on other planets and whatnot. And um, it starts out really amazing, like cinematography. This, this scene at the very beginning of the movie, it sort of starts like way out in space. And then it sort of like zooms in and zooms in and zooms in like, you know, like billions of light years until it finally gets to like an office, or I think, and it like, or her laboratory where she's working. It's like unbelievable. And the effect of that is to say, wow. We are a meaningless little speck in a huge universe. As a matter of fact, throughout the movie, there's this line that keeps getting repeated. It's basically people that are skeptical about whether there's life on other planets. Um, this response several times in the movie is, well, you know, this, the universe is so huge. There's got to be life on other planets because otherwise it sure is a lot of wasted space. That's this little line. Sure is a lot of wasted space unless there's life on other planets. Of course, it's fascinating that people that don't believe in God think that there was somebody to waste the space, right? That's a moral charge, right? So it's inherently contradictory. But here's the thing. What the Bible would say, what the Bible would say is, it's not wasted space. The creation, as vast as it is, God created with a word. But it gives you something, something to kind of get some perspective. How much greater must the cross be if you consider what it cost right you need something to give you some sense of the hugeness of the cross and maybe the galaxies maybe the whole universe can begin to give you a sense of the proportion because that was made with a single word no sweat whatsoever jesus dying on a cross His sweat was like great drops of blood. Right? Do you understand? The love of God, the power of God is not seen so much in the creation. It took a word. It's seen in Jesus dying on a cross and staying there when he didn't have to for you. Let's pray.